Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's good to have you here. And I am C.R. Wiley, and I'm a pastor of a church in the Pacific Northwest. And I've written books, and I go around and talk to lots of people. That's enough about me. Why don't we kick it over to you, Tom, and then Glenn, and then back to me, because it's my day. I'm Tom Price. I do quite a bit of talking myself. I teach. <laughs> I teach uh, theology, uh, Christian ethics, and philosophy. One of the places, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Great. And I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired history professor, uh, currently a ministry associate with Reflections Ministries and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. I teach, I write, and I do things like that. <laughs> okay. So, uh, when I said it's my day, for those who uh, are not familiar with the way we do things here on the show, we, when we're not interviewing people, uh, we each take a turn at, and present the subject of the day and kind of guide our, the, the conversation a little bit. But once the ball gets rolling, who knows where that ball will end up? And that's the way things tend to work for the podcast. And that's, I think, the way people like it. So with those things in mind, what is the subject of the day? Well, inspired by the conference that I just attended, sponsored by Touchstone Magazine in Chicago, uh, where we had a number of great presentations. Tom had a chance to, to listen to some of those lectures. And by the way, some of the speakers that were at the conference have agreed to come on the podcast uh, so let me give you a couple of names, folks out there in podcast land, grumblers. You know, you can <laughs> kind of prepare for these. We haven't got the dates scheduled yet for the for the conversations, but Hans Borsma has agreed to come on the show. And Hans Borsma, you know, is a, a significant uh, uh, kind of force theologically right now. Uh, his book, uh, Heavenly Participation really was a significant book for me, really helped me in a number of ways. And then Michael Hanby, uh, who wrote No God, No Science, and he gave a tremendous talk uh, at Touchstone. So Touchstone, uh, in case folks aren't familiar with it, is a magazine that presents itself as uh, being uh, a magazine that is uh, produced, published in the spirit of C.S. Lewis's statement or title, Mere Christianity. Mere Christianity. And it just so happens that I am leading a men's book study at my church on that book, Mere Christianity. We're in book four, and there are only four books in Mere Christianity, and we're, we're beginning the, the fourth book tonight. But here it is, for those of you who are watching on YouTube or Spotify. By the way, we have a, a visual element on Spotify. I didn't even know this. I just discovered it recently that our, our listening audience on Spotify has gone up uh, huh. since you can actually watch our beautiful faces huh. on Spotify. <laughs> and the rest of our faces. We, we... <laughs> <laughs> so now the term mere Christianity is uh, a, uh, a reference to kind of the core of the Christian faith that all Christians share in common. I guess that's one way to describe it. He describes it as well using this image. It's kind of the hallway that all of the various, you know, subcategories of Christianity or denominations or however you'd like to put it, uh, their rooms are off of the main hall. So what he wanted to do with uh, the book, and it was actually uh, originally a, a, a based on a set of uh, 
public addresses that he gave on the BBC during World War II, which is just fascinating to think about, considering the content of those mm-hmm. of those talks. But uh, what he wanted to do is present the case for Christianity, you could say, uh, in a very, I think, accessible way or manner. And at the same time, uh, introduce people to the riches of the Christian faith and its depth, which, you know, not many people can do. Not many people can make something accessible and yet deep. But C.S. Lewis was one of those people. He could do that. You know, Chesterton is another person like that. And maybe we could have a show on that theme someday. You know, who are the great apologists who are both deep and accessible? But uh, a number of people uh, credit mere Christianity with their conversions. I think Chuck Colson uh, said that mere Christianity played a big role in his conversion. Is that right, uh, Glenn? Uh, yes, it is. Um, he, when charges were being filed for Watergate, he went to a friend's house and the friend uh, introduced him to mere Christianity. And that was absolutely critical. That was really the thing more than anything else that led to his conversion. And Chuck isn't alone in that. You can read any number of other major thinkers who have, um, who have credited mere Christianity with them coming to faith. So it's an incredibly important book just in terms of its impact on a lot of very significant people uh, in the Christian world. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's just reflect for a little while on the title, Mere Christianity, because I think a couple of things come to my mind when I hear that title. You know, one of those things is uh, mere Christianity, meaning, I guess, without frills or icing or additional things that aren't sort of like core to the sort of Christian uh, truth or the sort of the core of Christianity. But also it, it sometimes when people use the word mere, they have something else in mind. They, it's, it's, uh, it's used uh, more, I think, commonly to refer to, well, it's not, there's not much to it. It's merely this. And I think sometimes when people hear the term mere Christianity, that's what they're actually thinking, that mere Christianity in that respect, kind of dismissively. But that's not what Lewis is getting at with the title. I think he's getting to what we just talked about, this sort of common core that Christians share in common. Now, I think a couple of things uh, need to be said in the way of caveats with regard to that. There are a lot of folks who would describe themselves as Christians, who would be uncomfortable with things that Lewis says in the book. Um, You know, for example, say you were a oneness Pentecostal, right? Well, you know, there's a lot in mere Christianity that you're going to say, I reject, right? But, you know, you're likely to say, I'm a Christian. Um, Another group would be uh, theological liberals. Theological liberals will stumble over just one thing after another in mere Christianity and say, I'm a Christian, but I disagree with that and that and that. For example, miracles. Um, maybe maybe liberal Christians today, in a weird way, are more open to the miraculous than they were maybe 30 years ago. But certainly, um, when it came to you know the period in which Lewis was writing, people who were theologically modernists, maybe that's another way to put it, had rejected the miraculous and Lewis gets into the miraculous very straightforwardly in mere Christianity and essentially says you can't have Christianity without it. So 
you know, it's not so capacious. We're not talking about kind of like the modern ecumenical movement where, you know, all the, you know, sort of uh, communities of faith, you know, that's how they describe this stuff. You know, faith communities get together and talk about everything that they have in common. And, and yeah. you know, the only people who show up are the lefties. And what do they all have in common? Well, on some kind of social justice thing that they want to promote. <laughs> but you, so any thoughts on any of that stuff, guys? Yeah, for Lewis, when he talks about mere Christianity, he's talking about small orthodoxy. You know, as yeah. someone who was as thoroughly steeped in the historic Christian tradition via his studies of literature, um, Lewis appreciates, he understands and appreciates tradition and its significance, but he is also well aware that there are elements of, of tradition that were accepted in the Middle Ages that are just nonsense. Yeah, even the Catholic Church has rejected a lot of those. But you know, there there were elements that show up in the literature of the period that you know you just simply can't take seriously. But nonetheless, there's a core set of beliefs that are absolutely essential to the faith that Lewis is very, very familiar with, even before he becomes a Christian. And he holds those in yeah. very high regard. Yeah, I I I think what you have you have with Lewis too is I mean, if this the mere Christianity could be summed up in, as Glenn said, that kind of small orthodoxy, or what can basically be doctrinally summed up in in the thin definitions, but full definitions of the creeds. Um, what the creeds, uh, what scripture says at length, the creeds say in short. And, and so, you know, doctrine of the Trinity, the cl classic doctrine of the Trinity, the classic doctrine of incarnation, and the, the, the classic reality vision the nature of God, the nature of humans, the nature of what's wrong with us, um, without having to get into all of the um, varieties of readings of those core doctrines. So it's a holding to the doctrines and a lot of their core elements um, as the truth without just staking himself on in one particular denominational reading. Yeah. 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 At this point, I, I want to throw something in about the creeds. Um, and this is something I think most people don't really understand, especially people who are very quick to cite sola scriptura. What most people don't get is that the concept of sola scriptura historically didn't mean when I read the scripture, you know, God speaks to me and that's it. You know, it's just, it's just me and my Bible. Um, yeah. It didn't mean that, you know, you could just simply pull out a proof text for anything you want. Otherwise, we're great with eat, drink, and be merry. Um, yeah. <laughs> the the um, the idea of sola scriptura, and this actually goes way way back historically, is that there is something called the regula fide, the rule of faith, that governs interpretation of scripture. And what the regula fide does is it provides guardrails, so that basically what it says is if you interpret scripture in a way that contradicts this, you're getting it wrong. You know, so what it does is it, it provides the, the parameters around which genuine exegesis, serious exegesis, um, is valid or potentially valid. The creeds do not have authority themselves. They've got a derived authority because they are accurate summations of scripture properly exegeted. 
And therefore, if you interpret the creed, excuse me, the scriptures contrary to the creed, for example, as oneness Pentecostals, you're getting it wrong. If you reject the virgin birth, if you reject the resurrection, if you reject, well, the the Trinity, uh, any, any of these kinds of things, you're getting it wrong. You are not reading the scriptures accurately. So that that's really sort of the point of the creed and the regular fide. We, reg, we I think most evangelicals today basically ignore that side of sola scriptura, but it's very very yeah, important at core right. historically. Yeah, it becomes it's, solo scriptura. Right. <laughs> that's right. Now I think uh, what might be assumed is that okay, if we limit ourselves to these core elements that define the Christian faith, we end up with a very small body of things that really don't relate to the larger world very well. But actually, that's not true at all. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you, you know, if you had had the uh, opportunity to attend the most recent Touchstone Conference, you would have seen, as I did see, because uh, I was there, <laughs> number of Reformed Christians, people with uh, you know, Presbyterian and uh, sort of Dutch Reformed backgrounds. Uh, there were a number of Lutherans who were present, um, Missouri Synod folks. Uh, there were uh, Greek Orthodox, uh, Syrian Orthodox. There were Roman Catholic uh, people present. There were people from other uh, Protestant groups. So it was a, a pretty uh, sort of, I think, interesting bunch. And there was not any uh, controversy concerning the things that uh, would divide those groups at the conference because there was so much that we have in common that w- would, was great to talk about. <laughs> and I think that is important. And I think it's also important to keep that in mind when we think about, say, what is an ideal that maybe we can hope for and pray for uh, when it comes to the future of our country or even other countries in the world and the world in general. I think sometimes people are afraid that if we make the Christian faith central to the deliberative process of, you know, uh, de- deciding how we're going to order our society, what should be emphasized, what should be condemned, what should be praised, that, you know, the sectarian character of all of the different Christian groups will pour, pull us in a zillion different directions and we won't be able to do agree on anything. I think that's crazy. I think that, a, 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 a you know, a publication like Touchstone or uh, this book uh, provides us with a great deal to work with that we share in common as Christians, and we could actually de- derive a public, uh, you know, philosophy and even uh, morality that would be helpful for governing uh, a country. Uh, if you know, we just focused on the things that you know we as Christians share in common. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I think what you what you have with. Yeah, well, let's use a touchstone for an example, is Christians committed to, through through their, their strand of Christianity, the Christian vision of things. And they see a common problem we all face is the radical erosion, ethically, morally, of society, especially as it has moved far away from any 
strong Christian influence on culture to where we are all sitting in a similar boat that is sinking very quickly with holes in it. <laughs> and, and while we're spending all the time saying, oh, you're not a Christian or you're not a Christian, we are actually ignoring the fact that we are in that boat and we are sinking. Those debates are, are important and significant, and we do need to continue to debate the best ways to understand redemption, salvation, eternal life. Um, passionately. Um, but on the other hand, um, as Lewis is hitting, like one of the topics he will hit, which we'll probably get to, is that materialism has basically began at this time encroaching into um, the public, um, almost to where it was becoming um, uh, the common assumption, definitely in the academic world, starting to spill into wider culture, to where if we didn't begin to draw off of what we did hold in common as Christians about creation, you know, about the creator-creation, the creator-creature relation, and the problem, then, then we were going to be sinking continuously faster, faster, and faster, to the point that that influence is going to almost be gone, and the problems that arise from that influence being gone, we're actually seeing today. Um, and so we, like Touchstone, they're trying to retrieve that richness of what is shared in common, recognizing the differences, um, but utilizing those differences actually to be different points of light to kind of fill in a full picture rather than everything being conflictual. So I don't know if I said that well, but. No, I, no, I think you're absolutely right. Glenn, do you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah. Um, personally, I think denominations get a bad rap. You know, we we talk about unity, you know, and, and how important unity is scripturally, and, and we lament the divisions that are in the church. And I would I agree with that, but I don't think denominations per se are the problem. Yeah. Because the fact is that different people have different temperaments and find different forms of worship suitable for for their needs. There are some people who really, really love high liturgy. There are other people that that leaves cold and like a more uh, looser a liturgy or even charismatic type stuff and so on. There's room for both. Mm -hmm. The problem comes when we start throwing rocks at people who don't do it our way. And I think the beauty of Touchstone is the emphasis on mere Christianity. If we would start emphasizing the things we have in common rather than the things that divide us, things would go a lot better for us. You know, I keep thinking of a um, an ore-powered ship. You know, if everybody is on the oars and are pulling together, it works pretty well. If they're using their oars to beat up on each other, you're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. And and that you know that, that all too often we end up beating up on each other rather than recognizing the fact that the stuff we have in common is far more important than than the things that divide us. I th I think uh, on that note, sorry, I don't want to uh, just just hog the air, but I just while, while it's fresh is one of the things I did notice, you do notice is I mean as as someone who has strong evangelical reform yet also connected to the the richer tradition of Christianity the way way I would see what I do um, a critique for example from that has been very strong that has grew out of the the Vatican II well the prior to Vatican II scholars like the Nouvelle theologians 
which went back and looked for places at which things started to go wrong in Christianity that caused a lot of the divisions that we suffer from today. And as they started to trace the doctrine of God and then the changes of, of that in society and then the, the, the breakaway from realism and the issues of nominalism and the way in which Protestantism also, while trying to slow down some of that, also uh, sped, some of it up, sped some of it up, that's good for me as a Protestant because maybe I don't agree with that whole interpretation, but I need to go trace those steps and find out what places did we contribute to some of the fragmentation that has led to secularism that was not consistent with what Christians have held across time? Maybe the, all the Christians before were wrong, but I need to make sure I follow those steps before I can sit, stand here and make such a claim. And, and I think that a group like this allows a context of mutual charity to take place where we can critique each other's traditions without having to, to uh, you know, become, you know, uh, lose that charitable disposition. Anyway, I yeah, believe yeah, it. That's good. Yeah, and, and I think a couple of thoughts at this point come to mind. One is that divide and conquer was a strategy that the Brits used to build an empire. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and, you know, I don't mean to in, sort of imply that uh, they're Satan, but Satan certainly has done the same thing <laughs> yeah. in the sense that, uh, the divisions that have, uh, you know, sort of become calcified or, or sort of uh, become almost un, unbridgeable within the larger Christian world when it comes to um, being able to promote mere Christianity broadly uh, has left a, a, a wide open, you know, space for secularism and materialism yeah. to, to fill and essentially, at this point, it seems as though they're in their mop-up operation. You know, they're, they're you know, we've completely cleared the field, and they're just, you know, chasing us into our homes and killing us in them, you know, if, so to speak. So there's there's that. I think too, in uh, uh, something else to keep in mind in all of this, and, and Lewis brings this up in Mere Christianity, is I'm not trying to present Mere Christianity in a utilitarian. Uh, uh, sort of way uh, to further some public good. In other words, the Christian faith is not true because it's helpful for establishing a good social order. Uh, it helps to establish a good social order because it's true. And it uh, is something that you pursue for its own sake. And as you pursue it for its own sake, all these things are added to you as well. Seek first the kingdom. They know what I'm getting at. And, you know, Lewis in Mere Christianity talks about people who uh, abandon their pursuit of heaven and in so doing become useless to the world. And he notes as well that the people who were the most serious about their pursuit of heavenly things were the mm -hmm. most useful in their time uh, and in their times and in their places. And so that's, I, I, so just, I just want everybody to know that I'm not trying to uh, promote uh, mere Christianity because it's useful. <laughs> anyway, uh, well, let's jump into it a little bit. Um, you know, it, the book starts off with the discussion of, of natural law, but he, he goes about it in a way that really is disarming. If you, if you use the term natural law, uh, not only will secularists, uh, you know, put up their guard, but many Protestants will. Yeah. This is one of those weird things where, you know, it's, it's like, 
you know, we've joked about this a little bit and, we, and Ken Myers told me this joke one time. He said, if there's one thing that, ref, you know, serious reformed people and secularists are on the same page with, it's Christmas is a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I have to say it's very, very similar with the denigration between postmodernity and reason. But we we'll, we can get to that later. But <laughs> but 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 getting to, but getting to this is that some if you say natural law, I mean obviously uh, all of the positive law, uh, you know, secularists will get up in arms and say there is no such thing as a natural law. Uh, but uh, you know that's where Lewis starts, and he starts off in a very, I think, uh, common sense way, which is I think the way natural law is supposed to be, kind of. Uh, promoted is is this is kind of common sense. This is the way things are. But he starts off with the fact that people, when they're pursuing their own interests uh, and find other people harming them in the process, they'll say that's not right. That, though that's not right. You should you should behave this way and not that way. So, for example, you know you should. Um, not cut somebody off in traffic or flip them the bird or <laughs> things like that. You know, you, 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 when you do these things to people uh, uh, or when these things are done to you, you, you argue uh, from the standpoint that there is a real right and wrong in the world. And it's not just simply a social construct. It's not just simply you asserting your interests, but you're making an appeal to something that's real. And because of that, because that's the way things are, the, at the moment that you undermine that, uh, you undermine the ability of, for people to make moral arguments of any kind. So as Lewis says, this is indicative that uh, we live in a morally ordered world, and this is a clue that we can uh, follow to understand the meaning of life. So he starts off in a way that would be kind of accessible and understandable to just about anybody. You know, for example, he says this is even something that children do in the playground when they say no fair, no fair. So little kids as young as four and five and six years old are making profound moral arguments in the playground <laughs> when they say no fair. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm, I'm struck by the connection between this and the appendix to the abolition of man. <laughs> you know, one of the things he does in the abolition of man, he talks about natural law in terms of the Tao. And yeah. he says that, you know, people argue against this by using cultural relativism. You know, different cultures, you know, think different things are right and wrong. And so how, how can you possibly know which one is correct and so on? Um, his response is essentially, well, wait a minute. When you actually take a look, at, a look at these cultures, they're not as different as they seem to be. Mm -hmm. You know, he uses the example of monogamy versus polygamy. And what he says is, you know, what these laws tell us is a man can have one wife or many wives, but he can't have just any woman he wants. Right. <laughs> you know, or murder. Every, every culture has a prohibition on murder. They just differ on what it means. Mm -hmm. You know, there are always some people you are not allowed to kill. Right. You know, and so on. Um, so his point is in, in, in that appendix, the point is that the, the 
uh, cultural relativist argument doesn't really hold and that when you take a closer look at things, what you will find is that there's a remarkable degree of, of commonality between all of these various moral codes. So the details right. differ, but the core principles are the same. Yeah, and, and we should expect something like that in a world in which, you know, there are a, a wide range of maybe conditions on the ground that would maybe make it possible for these variations to occur, but we can identify these common, uh, you know, things that, that they share. Yeah. Tom. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, I mean, and as a Christian, it, it makes sense because the, the reality in which we enact our creatureliness is, is ordered. And because it is ordered with distinct kinds of things that have different uh, essences and we have different relationships to them, there are going to be different consequences if we relate to those things that is out of accord with the nature of what those things are for. So there is built into the fabric of reality a, a, a kind of distinct forms and distinct purposes and when we're connected to that in an improper way, there are going to be those consequences. That's part of part of what creatureliness is all about. I mean, you you, you see it from Genesis and the fall, and 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 from thereafter. So yes, thorns have grown. So there is a sense in which we do not read a perfect natural law off the surface that somehow leads us straight to heaven, um, and we interpret it in very limited, finite, fallen ways. Um, but as the light of Christ begins, that illumines all things, begins to shine afresh, um, we begin to be able to discern those contours. And then as we engage different cultures, say, hey, look, you know, um, you know, um, Christ comes to perfect that which is there in creation, which we're a part of, say, the family structure or societal structure, and bring flourishing to it by weaning it off of those distortions and orienting it the right way, which finds its fullness, as Lewis said, in the heavenly vision radiating through the creaturely to illuminate those things the right way. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me let me just, uh, I kind of got ahead of myself a little bit. What I want to do at this point is just do, uh, you know, provide a quick breakdown of the book and its component parts. So we've been talking about this, the first book. The first book in Mere Christianity uh, is entitled Right and Wrong as a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe. So we've been talking about that. And I want to return to that because we need to do make, make a few more comments or have you know say a few more things about that. But the, the second book is what Christians believe. So book one, dealing with the moral law. The second book is dealing with particulars of the Christian faith. And then book three is Christian behavior. In other words, moral uh, strictures and so forth and uh, things that to strive for in Christian virtue. And then the last book, which is, is has another kind of uh, intriguing title, Beyond Personality or First Steps in the Doctrine of the Trinity. So we're just in book one at this point. And I wanted to say something about book one because, or a couple of things about book one. One is that, you know, as you noted, Tom, uh, the natural law doesn't get you to heaven. Even if uh, you know, we understood it perfectly. Uh, we're not saying that the natural law is a substitute for uh, grace and the work of Christ on the cross and rising from the grave and ascending into heaven. I think sometimes people get nervous when you talk about natural law because they think that's what you're saying. Yeah. Um, it, that, but that's just crazy. Natural law never saved a soul. 
But um, the other thing it, with relationship to natural law is that even though we know right and wrong, we know we're in the wrong. And that's what he gets to in the very last chapter of that book. So the book uh, is broken down into five chapters. The first is the law of human nature. We talked about that. Then some objections. We've been talking about that. The reality behind the law, or the, I'm sorry, the reality of the law. Then what lies behind the law. So he's getting to God. And then fifth, we have cause to be uneasy. <laughs> and what he's getting with that is, is that we know right and wrong, and we know that we're in the wrong that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what's intriguing about this is that Lewis is presenting this as more or less something that you could know without uh, special revelation. Just by being an honest person, assessing the situation that you find yourself on the ground, knowing that you know the difference between right and wrong, and knowing that sometimes you have been in the wrong, then the question is, is what then? You know, uh, and what we're dealing with, of course, is sin. But we haven't even, according to Lewis in the book, we haven't even gotten to Christianity yet. This is stuff that everybody ought to know, uh, whether they're Christians or not. Any thoughts? Yeah, one of the things that's interesting about Christianity is when you compare it to any other religion in the world, we are the only one that has a doctrine of original sin. Yeah, It isn't in Judaism much. Um, there are some hints of it here and there, but by and large, the Jews don't accept it. The Muslims insist that that's not the case because otherwise we wouldn't have free will. Uh, the secularists don't believe in it because they don't believe in evil um, and, and so on. Um, the only, only a religion that has grace at its core can have a doctrine of original sin. That's and a good point. And original sin is, well, uniquely Christian, as is the concept of grace. Um, I would also argue, I, I've never been able to find it, but someone claims that G.K. Chesterton once said something to the effect that original sin is the only doctrine of philosophy proven by 6,000 years of human experience. Yeah, I've heard the same thing from about Chesterton, yeah. Uh, you know, related to this, Joshua Mitchell, uh, you know, and we talked about one of his articles in First Things a little while back. He was another speaker at the Touchstone Conference. And in that, in that address, the title of the address was uh, Identity Politics is Heresy, or the Heresy of Identity Politics. And what he was getting at is that it's because we've lost our doctrine of original sin that we are now dealing with the implications, and it, the implications are identity politics, because what we what we want is justification without God's grace. And the way we the way we, uh, uh, you know, can uh, have justification with when we know that there's this sort of abiding sense of guilt that we feel, but we uh, can't own it. Uh, we basically blame somebody else. We scapegoat. This kind of brings in Rene Girard and all of that. But uh, because we've lost both our understanding of the doctrine of original sin and grace, and you made that connection, Glenn, uh, we resort to these kinds of scapegoating processes to deal with this sort of abiding sense of guilt. Yeah, we, we're almost taught not to, I mean, to always be able to write off 
our responsibility, moral responsibilities by my, you know, my house, my up growing up, the history behind me, the pre-conscious drives. I remember the story of, uh, you remember Malcolm Rug Mugridge, the um, yeah. famous uh, journalist, converted, very conservative Catholic. But he tells a story you probably know about um, prior to his conversion to Christianity. He, he was pr pretty much one of the, the kind of uh, radical, somewhat left-leaning liberal, um, but very uh, confident and proud. And uh, I re remember him telling a story about having made up his mind that he was going to at some point commit adultery. I mean, he was pondering it, pondering it, and pondering it. And this is a person who probably wouldn't really have held anything about original sin and the like. Um, and he he's in India swimming in one of the rivers um, doing some reporting there. And he sees a woman in the distance and he has made up his mind. This is the time she was naked uh, washing in the river. And as he starts to get close and kind of make his move, she turns around and she's a leper. She's cut. Oh, I mean, just wow. covered. And he said it almost flooded him which he saw eventually as a, as a grace with the yeah. fact that the, the ugliness of his soul was far worse than what he was just experiencing yeah. as lusting after someone yeah. that was in such a state. And that kind of gives you a sense in which you, you, you can, people can bump up against their own wickedness and sinfulness. And again, I see it as part of providence and, and grace. Yeah, that work. yeah. Um, but but here's someone who is completely at this point, you know, not embracing the faith, um, rejecting it, rebelling against it, and then starts to bump up against that reality um, yeah. in the conditions of their finitude and reality. Um, but you're right that the switch then, once that kind of stuff becomes explainable by something else and there is no real sin, then it becomes this, this identity politics world. Yeah, and the longing for purity. Yeah. So uh, in the next book, What Christians Believe, uh, the titles of those chapters are The Rival Conceptions of God, Two, The Invasion, Three, The Shocking Alternative, Four, The Perfect Penitent, and Five, The Practical Conclusion. Well, let me take us back to, to, to the first chapter in that book, The Rival Conceptions of God. It begins with kind of the watered-down humanitarian 19th century, you know, the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man shtick. And he's pretty merciless in his treatment of that and just to kind of dismisses it. Then he goes to, uh, you know, what he thinks are more, I guess, serious alternatives. One is pantheism. He, he, he talks about that uh, for a while. And then he goes into dualism. And dualism is, he thought, the first adult option. <laughs> and, and, and because it takes evil seriously, for one thing, and you don't have that with those other versions, uh, those other conceptions of God. And we could go into a long, probably, show on each of the reasons why those two don't uh, have real doctrines of evil. But that problem with that uh, understanding, radical dualism, where you have a good deity and an evil deity, and just what is good and bad depends on the will of each deity, is that, uh, and this is the, the privation argument, uh, kind of summarized from Augustine and others, that evil doesn't really have a life of its own. It's a parasitic at, at the mm -hmm. core and requires goodness to feed upon in order to sustain itself. So then he goes to the Christian uh, understanding, which is 
Uh, the creator is good. The create creature, the creation uh, was originally good, but then something happened. Something happened. And that something ha that happened is why we have evil. Um, and, you know, you, you can look at it at a couple levels, obviously, with spiritual, you know, powers and principalities, uh, but then just human uh, tendencies and uh, proclivities with regard to evil and sin. Uh, and then, you know, with this in mind, you know, he gets to eventually the perfect penitent and the perfect penitent is not you or me. <laughs> this is, this is how he's playing some, some interesting games here because he's, he's trying to disarm us because he, he essentially says, there's nothing you can do. <laughs> uh, you know, this is where I think, you know, Lewis, uh, throughout the course of the book tries to be sort of fair and give everybody their space. But I think that, you know, uh, at a, in a couple of, or in a few places, you come to see that Lewis does have a kind of reformed outlook with regard to the very fact that he began with, with the natural law, I think is kind of. And, I, and well. I think, I think what you'll find, you know, I found surprising as I've studied the history of theology is, um, is that that language could be used, utilized and used from, from orthodoxy, classic Roman Catholicism, not the kind at the time of the reformation. Um, and that's one of the things that the reformers were retrieving that, that, you know, it, all of them held the, the will um, is, is directed to the wrong thing and cannot, you would have to have a will outside of the fallen will to will, <laughs> right? Um, the difference would be the way the will directs the intellect. Um, and that, that's a whole nother show too. But I think that, so what you're getting here is that no matter how much of the truth you're able to see, you could even be presented the gospel and say, oh, I need that. But there's nothing you can do there because you can't be the will that um, frees your will. Um, yeah, and yeah. I think that that's that's where that's where the the, the primacy of grace uh, in in the primacy of Christ is is classically Christian. And it's actually heavily Augustinian. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Particularly. That's that's the yeah. whole tradition. Yeah. And this is where he goes with the perfect penitent. Christ is the perfect penitent. He's yeah. the one who fulfills the law, but also suffers the consequences of the law. Uh, and so in a sense, you know, he's done the repenting for you. <laughs> yeah. In other words, he's, he's done everything that's necessary uh, for our salvation. And then the question is, is, well, how, and this is where he gets to, you know, where, where he goes in this last chapter of this book, you know, how do we participate in that or how is that applied to us? And this is where, you know, prepositions, uh, you know, in the New Testament are so important or why they're so, you know, you got, you know, with, you got for, you got in. <laughs> so, you know, we are in Christ. Christ died for us. We've been raised with him. You know, the, and according to Luther, we've even got under, but I haven't yet found them. <laughs> kidding to my Lutheran. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so that then, so at this point, we're talking about, okay, you're a Christian now. You, you trust Christ to have done what needed to be done for your salvation. And then, uh, what follows is the next book, Christian Behavior. Let me read uh, the titles of the chapters from this one. And there are 12, by the way, which I think is an interesting number to use uh, here, particularly since he doubles up the, uh, something at the end. So uh, he talks about the three parts of morality, he talks about the cardinal virtues, 
He talks about social morality. That's number three. Number four, morality and psychoanalysis. This is an interesting chapter. This dates the book because he's dealing with that Freudian fad that was really running strong at that time. <laughs> then uh, chapter five, Christ, uh, sexual morality, and then Christian marriage. Then he goes to forgiveness. That's chapter seven. Uh, chapter eight, the great sin. That's an interesting chapter. Uh, it's on pride, by the way. And then charity and hope, then faith and faith. And I think it's interesting that he broke up you know, faith into two chapters. And I don't think he was doing it just so that he could have 12. I think he has, a, he makes a really, he, he goes uh, to, to some length to demonstrate why he needed two chapters to talk about faith. Um, but um, let me just uh, zero in on, a, on, a, on, a, on two or three things here. One is the cardinal virtues. He's talking about prudence, temperance, justice, and courage. Those are the and, and he's saying that those are things that ought to characterize Christians, which is an interesting thing to consider. And I think this ties into the natural law. You know, there yeah. are certain things that, you know, even people who aren't Christian know are right and wrong. And there are things that people who aren't Christian know are, are really good things, ways to behave as well. So and, this is, and this is where you get um, grace perfecting nature, uh, reversing the impact of evil, death, hell, and the grave, enlivening the creature afresh, and taking what is natural to them as creatures and perfecting it. And that's mm -hmm. where the theological verge is. So you have right there that connection, which was very classical. I mean, a lot of times we talk about now almost in a Gnostic sense that in a lot in the reform world is, where, you know, the creation has been time bombed. And we're basically just waiting for everything to be created anew to will we'll be annihilated and then reconstituted. And that's very different than the classical way of putting it. And Lewis, I think, is uh, exemplifying that at the yeah. end there. Yeah, I think that's right. Now, he goes to social morality, and so, he, you know, he's dealing with kind of the, the personal and then the social in that these both are things that follow from, uh, you know, the Christian doctrine of salvation. Uh, I'm not going to go into morality and psychoanalysis. That's an interesting chapter to think about if you're into uh, trying to think about how Freud was distorting our understanding of the soul at that time. But it's almost like Pass, passe. Um, <laughs> but then he goes right into sexual morality. And I think that's interesting. So he, he notes that there's something particular about sexuality that has gone wrong. And this, again, is an Augustinian insight, but it's, I think just at a practical level, it's almost impossible to deny. I mean, particularly in our world today, where we just see all kinds of insanity around us, and then uh, from that to Christian marriage, and he defends a very traditional hierarchical understanding of Christian marriage. And he yeah. says right up, I know I'm going to offend a lot of my readers. So this is 1943 or 44, 45. And, he, and even then, uh, the egalitarian streak uh, in you know, you know, sort of uh, Britain and so forth was... Uh, evident that he felt like, you know, this was going to be hard for some people to swallow. Then forgiveness. And that's a chapter that's a fascinating one to, to reflect on, because in that chapter, he defends the right of the state to capital punishment and to war <laughs> at the same time, acknowledging the importance of forgiveness. Even so, so in other words, 
it's like, it's like that scene in Oh Brother Where Art Thou. You remember Oh Brother Where Art Thou? You know, you got the three yeah, convicts yeah. on the run. It's a Delmar. They go to the yeah. baptism. There's and 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 Delmar is just you know he's kind of the guy who's who's kind of the considered you know he's treated like the dummy and uh, uh, and so he he sees the baptism being conducted. He's moved. He 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 goes down to be baptized. He comes up out of the water. And he says, "I've been forgiven." Of all my <laughs> sins, including that, including that piggly wiggly I knocked over in Yazoo. <laughs> and then, you know, as C. Everett McGill says, I think it's C. Everett, it's Everett says, I thought you said you didn't rob that grocery store. And I said, well, I lied about it, but I was forgiven for that too. <laughs> and, then he, and then he says, ain't nobody got nothing on me now. And then, and then Everett says, well, well, Delmar, the Lord's forgiven you, but not the state of Mississippi. <laughs> and, and Lewis defends the right of the state of Mississippi, so to speak, uh, to convict Delmar and send him away to prison, <laughs> even though he's been forgiven for his sins. And that's, so that's a fascinating chapter, uh, particularly, I think, in light of the fact that a lot of the people that I have pastored over the years who have been the victims of maybe uh, some kind of uh, abuse of authority in their lives. Um, I have wondered, well, now that I'm saved and I've forgiven that person, should I allow that person back into my life, even though they're still likely to do what they did before? And I've said to them, no, you're not. I mean, you know, you can still establish some boundaries. You know, you just, just because you've been, you know, just because you've forgiven somebody, doesn't mean you're their doormat. You know, you can, you can establish some boundaries. Any thoughts on that? Well, I think that's a good example of what I mean, what he's saying there, Um, you know, just because someone has found forgiveness and and sought out, you know, the forgiveness of the family, you know, that they murdered their daughter (laughs) um, doesn't mean, therefore, that they should, you know, not have consequences to to what they did. There's something there's something. You know, I, I mean, this is something Christians always wrestle with: how to figure out the the for, the fact that Christ dies for our sins and the sufficiency of that with God, but also how to continue uh, a social order that still, until that kingdom comes in its fullness, and that's the consequences are fully done away. Um, you know, the temporal consequences of sin are fully done away with. That this order still continues in some sense. Um, I think what Christianity brings to it is, um, you know, elements of of um, of recognizing that when this is carried out, it it is often a loving thing to be done. It's kind of like disciplining your your child. Um, it, it's not a it's not an easy thing always for a Christian to do, um, but but it is part of the the moral next step. Um, they shouldn't be unjust, right? But there is nothing wrong in letting the kind of justice uh, take its course. Yeah, yeah. You know, you mentioned Chuck Colson before as an example here. He was going to be charged with a number of things under Watergate. And after he became a believer, he went to the prosecutor and said, I am not going to plead guilty on these charges because I did not do those. What I did do was this, (laughs) and I will plead guilty for that. Yeah. And the prosecutor said, basically, well, that was easy. <laughs> and, um, and, and, you know, but, but this is, you know, Chuck knew that he was forgiven, but he right. also knew that as a matter of integrity, he, which God expects of us, he needed to do this. 
Yeah, this would be, I think, probably under the rubric of restitution. So if you've mm-hmm. committed a crime, this, you know, yeah. his restitution in one sense would be to suffer the consequences of prosecution and condemnation for the crime that he actually was guilty of. Right. Yeah. yeah. So now uh, he proceeds here uh, after forgiveness to the great sin, and he's got some great thoughts on that. And as I said earlier, I believe it's a sin of pride, goes to charity, chooses to use the word charity as opposed to love. And by the way, I think that that is a, a move that I'd like to uh, see more people make because of the confusion surrounding the word love in our society. Yeah. yeah. Uh, then he goes to hope and the chapter on hope is where he, he addresses the subject of the human longing for what can't be satisfied in this life. And he says, either we're completely deluded or we're actually, you know, uh, dealing with evidence for the very thing that we're hoping for, because every other thing that we have, some longing for the, we have some legitimate way of satisfying that longing. Uh, and then he breaks down faith into two parts. And in those two parts, he's referring to faith as the content of the faith, sort of the intellectual content of the faith in one chapter. And then in the, in the following chapter, he's talking about trust in the sense right. of trusting Christ. The uh, yeah, the food. Yeah. Fiducci. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so that's uh, his treatment there is great. I, I think it's great. Now, the last book uh, is entitled Beyond Personality or First Steps in the Doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah. Now, I find this to be a great section. Uh, and it's interesting to, and to me that up to this point, he's been moving or working with juridical language more. Now he's yeah. moving into explicitly ontological language. Yeah, and participatory. Yeah. 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 Now, I, I think that the, that there are a lot of Christians who believe that these are like almost in, incompatible. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, we, we're either like juridical in our understanding of the Christian faith or ontological. So sometimes when I'm with my uh, Orthodox friends, it's so much un, about the ontology that you wonder if they ever get around to like Jesus died on the cross for your sins. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, it's all now I, their emphasis is on the resurrection. And that's great. Yeah. Uh, and that's, it's true that we, uh, in the the reform world, you know, we probably ignore the resurrection to the same degree that they ignore the crucifixion. Uh, (laughs) but the point is, is both happened. (laughs) And so there's, there, there are these two things that are going on and they're not from God's perspective, incompatible, but this, this chapter, uh, he, he, like, well, let me, let me read through the, through the titles here. And I want to just talk about the first two, but, um, the, so, as I noted, book four, Beyond Personality or First Steps in the Doctrine of the Trinity, chapter one, Making and Begetting. And then chapter two, The Three Personal God. Three, Time and Beyond Time. Four, Good Infection. Five, The Obstinate Toy Soldiers. <laughs> if you just want to read the section. <laughs> uh, yeah. Chapter six, Two Notes. Seven, Let's Pretend. <laughs> Number eight, chapter eight, is Christianity hard or easy? Chapter nine, counting the cost. Chapter 10, nice people or new men. And then chapter 11, the new men. Obviously, he has given away what he thinks is the option that Christianity presents us with, which is new men. But getting back to making and begetting. So he's, this is a marvelous treatment in a most uh you know, in the most accessible way I've ever seen uh, for distinguishing 
what you know we are getting at with the creeds when we make the distinction between begotten not made begotten yeah. not made yeah. um so the only begotten son of god so there's something about christ which is not true of us we are made not begotten but uh there's something that is promised to us when we receive christ christ mm-hmm. is given to us and, and we're, we're we're born of god Right. Born of God. Again, born of the begotten may be another way of putting it. It's very interesting. Yes, we are created, but the life we have is born of the begotten. Yeah. And he gets into the difference between bios and zoe uh, yeah. and make, it, it does a lot with that. But if anybody uh, has, you know, listened to us over the past couple of years and what are what are they talking about? When it comes to, you know, the these sort of difficult and, and subtle and abstract uh, you know, uh, doctrines with regard to the transcendence of God and the life of God and, and all that. Well, that's a great chapter uh, to, to refer to because he gives you some great examples. For example, he talks about, you know, a, a, a child is begotten of a father, right? But a father could also be a sculptor and make a statue. So the statue might look like a son, but it isn't a son, uh, but it's just a, you know, it's not begotten that therefore. Uh, so the statue is just something that's made, whereas uh, a son is begotten. So that's, that's the distinction he makes. And then, you know, he applies that to Christ and us. And then, as you noted, that through Christ, we have access into the life of God. So in this world, the bios is an analog to the Zoe, but it's mm-hmm. not the Zoe. It's a mm-hmm. different thing. Um, yeah. And what we really long for is Zoe, is that life in God, eternal life. Mm-hmm. So any thoughts on that? I mean, I think I think what's interesting is his manner of approach for the book. And I don't think that I really thought about it until we talked about it today this way, because it, it follows a lot from kind of uh, one, one way of doing um, realist theology that's classical is that's beginning in, you know, in our order of knowing, if you will, um, and scaling it, you could say, back to first principles or towards the, the, you know, the fulfillment of, you know, of all things, the final cause or the efficient cause, either direction. You end up with the Trinity, which is the source from whom, through whom, and to whom all things. So he starts down there with natural law um, and our violation of it. He moves into revelation and kind of filling filling that out and Christ and redemption. But then Trinity um, comes there. So in, in a sense, yes, Trinity is at the beginning because it is actually the ground of all the rest. But he's starting where we are. Right. He's, he's starting in the order of knowing, not that the order of being isn't present there, because it is. That's what's leading you to the Trinity. Um, and so Christians often fight back and forth. Well, we're starting with the order of, you know, the Trinity and unpacking everything. And you're starting with the order of knowing and you think you can climb that ladder. Um, but the relation when you have an efficient when the efficient cause is the same as the final cause, when the source from whom all things are is the same to whom all things you can do either. That's what the that's what the medieval world was constantly, I, I think, you know, trading back and forth between between someone you know like Anselm versus someone like uh, Aquinas or or some of the others. And I think Lewis brilliantly picks one of those and, and develops a whole work from it. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, and stuff. I would I would add that in speaking to the modern world, you have to do it that way. 
You can't start with ontology. You have to start with, well, you know, one of the basic rules of communication is you you got to connect before you pull. Yeah. Um, you know, you've, you've, you've got, you've got to find the, the you've got to find a point of commonality yeah. that you can then build from. And, you know, when you're dealing with God, in a sense, it doesn't matter where you start because he's the source and ending of all things. So, yeah. so starting, you, you, you can start with the end and work back to the beginning or start with the beginning and work to the end. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And I think the, I think realism almost, uh, you know, to ha- to to make sure it, it, the, the picture is realist rather than the, the planting of a, of a, you know, a worldview that's a, it's an ideal interpretation of reality um, means that we have to start with being as we we are, are part of it, because we, we we aren't God. We can't start with God's knowing of all. Yes, we have revelation. We have an invitation in, but that's an invitation that is broken into our world. And brought us into it. Um, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven. But it didn't come to you until I came down into where you were, and you were able to discern that you know this wasn't just Elijah. This wasn't just such and such. Um, this is the Son of Living God. So, I mean, the incarnation is telling us, and it's coming from God, the light that lights everyone. But it's also coming down into our orbit to which we don't we, we what we do know points in that direction, but it needs that further illumination to pull us up. And I think that's that's exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Well, note, note that with Peter, it begins with Jesus in the boat with him while he's fishing. That's right. I that's mean, right. That's the degree to which yeah. he went to make that connection to start where Peter yeah. was in a way that would communicate with him, in a way that he could understand, in a, in a way that, you know, in his finiteness and his fallenness and everything else, he is confronted then with something that he has no categories for. But he got to start somewhere, and that's where God starts. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, we're getting to the point where we should wrap things up, but I do want to uh, just mention one more thing because I just found it very, uh, well, it was just Lewis-esque. I mean, you know, kind of what mm-hmm. we're talking about here, brilliant uh, and at the same time accessible. And the, it has to do with this concept of, or this statement beyond personality. What, what is Lewis getting at? Well, a lot of people, uh, and we've talked about this a, a number of times, uh, a lot of people, uh, you know, will say that um, the Christian faith and our ability and our, and our att- attempts to understand God um, always come up short, and there's some truth in that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, uh, what they're actually up to is, is a dismissal of Christian teaching. You know, they want to just sort of like say, "Well, all of the things that the Christian Church is saying to me don't compare to the wondrous sort of power of, uh, of the sublime that I experience when I'm on, out in the desert at night, or something like that." And there's some truth to that. I mean, but what Lewis does is he says, "Well, he starts off with the fact that." Um, you know, you're just one person. And with the Christian faith, what we have is like a whole history of a bunch of other people who uh, have been thinking really hard about this and experienced God too. So who are you? (laughs) (laughs) He kind of humbles you that way. And then he gets into this, uh, this, he uses this as a segue to get into this, to the notion of transcendence. So this is his way into transcendence. It's fascinating. He uses, he uses the objection that people yeah. have to the or, to organize religion to get into transcendence, and yeah. he says when he talks about beyond personalities, he's, he, what he's getting at is that God just isn't the biggest thing around. 
that yeah. God is outside. And the way he yeah. talks about this is, again, it's this, uh, this way into it is through an illustration that's really helpful. He says, okay, imagine a line. Okay, imagine, uh, you know, uh, that the, you create a, 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 you know, a square out of, out of that line. Now imagine that you multiply the line until you create a three-dimensional object. So what you've done, you know, is you, have, you, you create a cube. So line, you know, square, cube. Now to the line, the square is beyond comprehension. To the square, the cube is beyond comprehension. To the square or to the cube, is there something more? Is there something beyond its comprehension? So he's using uh, an approach to time and space, just space in this case, uh, to help us see that there are certain limits uh, that we experience uh, even within the f- frameworks that we understand. There was a book years ago, I think it was called Flatland, where the, you had a, a world that was entirely two-dimensional in character, and yeah. somehow they they get, uh, if I remember correctly, they have some indication that there might be a three-dimensional world beyond the two-dimensional a, world. And they a, a, a sphere arrives, and it passes yeah. through the plane. Yeah. So you yeah. get the circle appearing on the plane that gets progressively bigger, and then gets yeah. progressively smaller and disappears. How are they going to understand this? Right, right. Yeah. That, it's a great illustration of, of the limitations of a particular sort of framework of thinking. Uh, and what Lewis does with this is he says, when we talk about the triune God, three and one, we're in a sense talking about something like this, something that's beyond personality, beyond what we can within the framework of our you know, uh, created order uh, be able to sort of observe and control and like we can do other, you know, we can't like we can't other, other things we observe and control, but this is something that we can have some intuition of, you know, so in, we can intuit something that uh, is the case, but we can't grasp it fully. And he says that the life of the triune God is of this character. It transcends. So one of the things he's getting at, I think, by this is he's saying the Trinity itself, even though it intersects with time and space, uh, is beyond time and space. It transcends. The the doctrine of the Trinity itself uh, provides a means for the imminent presence of God, but necessarily because God is transcendent as a triune God. Yeah, I have a a friend of mine who was a theologian now passed away, John Rankin, used to say that uh, Yahweh Elohim is the only thing that ever shows up in, in human intellectual history. Is the only being that is beyond space, time, and number. Mm. Yeah, and yeah. Well, number was directly into this. Yeah. Well, and, and and the verbal aspect of that Hebraic, I mean, this is what the, the, the early Hellenic Christians picked up to. It, its metaphysical implications this is what led them that in the naming of God, um, the self-naming of God is where, where, where you, you know, as I am, or I am that I am, or I am what I am, however you're working with it, the, the verbal aspect of that, that name um, is the self-existent one. Um, there's, there's no way really of getting around it because God is not making a connection in this, this naming to anything creaturely. There's nothing creaturely there. I, this is, I am, if you will. And this is kind of ego, I, me in the new Testament, um, before Abraham was, I am right. I mean, this is as ontologically full as you can get in and that's the self naming of God, (laughs) right? 
So, and as we begin to understand the way naming works, I mean, this is what earlier Christians understood too, is that naming and reality are, this is why to blaspheme the name of God or say something in the Lord's name in vain is bumping up against the kind of reality that's bound up with the name. This is why if you do something in Christ's name, the, the name and the reality um, mm-hmm. oriented the right way um, are, are so connected. And uh, I mean, so, so yeah, what you have there, I even forgot where we were going with this. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're talking about transcendence. And, oh, yeah, yeah, the, the, the transcendence. So you have in this naming, uh, the, the very naming, self-naming of God, the transcendent as the self-existent one, but then with the Trinity as it depicted, especially in John's gospel, as prior to the created creature relation. In the beginning was the word, word was with God, word was God, right? So that that kind of, you're given a glimpse into this transcendent realm that the only way we really have familiarity with anything is it's the light that lights the whole of creation. Creation is open to that transcendence because it isn't, um, doesn't have self-existence. It owes everything it is to that one that isn't a part of anything else in creation. So, yeah, I mean, this is, this is where I think some of the beauty and riches of what we have um, shouldn't be held behind a bush, but should be out there, you know, not under a tree, but out in front. Yeah, I think this is a great point to end the, the conversation uh, with, because Lewis makes that very point in this <laughs> section, you know, in this book, yeah. book four, he says, uh, when he begins the, the, the fourth book, he says, I have had a lot of people tell me I shouldn't go where I'm about to go here. They say, just give everybody just plain practical religion and leave the, <laughs> you know, the, uh, you know, ontological metaphysical stuff to the professionals. And he says, yeah. I'm not going to do that. I, I you know, that I need to go, I need to do this. And, you know, I think it confirmed, and you know, we have confirmation of that with our own show. You know, we've not tried to dumb anything down. We've dived into deep topics and the feedback we get almost weekly from all over the world is that that's why people like our show is that <laughs> we don't, we don't like, uh, yeah, we spend time maybe defining terms, uh, and trying to connect with folks, but we don't think that the, you know, the riches of the Christian faith are of such a character that only certain kinds of uh, eggheads should be able to enjoy them, <laughs> but it, they should be there for everybody to enjoy. Yeah. Well, anyway, why don't we just wrap it up with that? Thank you for listening to the Theology Podcast and making it to the end of another show. Uh, we, as I noted early on with the introduction of this show, we've got some great guests uh, in store, and I didn't even talk about all of them. Uh, yeah, but at the same time, we enjoy talking about topics that we each introduce to each other. And if you have an idea for a topic, occasionally we'll get those by email. And sometimes we even talk about those things. <laughs> and uh, if, you ha- if you'd like to make a suggestion along that line, we'd welcome it. Also, there are folks who support us on Patreon. We have uh, t- uh, 23 patrons now. And uh, we actually have uh, some of those folks who have said they want to kill Rousseau. And uh, we're glad for <laughs> those folks. And uh, they give us a good amount every month, and we're grateful. And uh, But whatever people give, we're grateful for. And we have people who support us for, through the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network and uh, other people who just reach out to us and, and give in other ways. So thank you for all of that. And with all of that said, we'll talk to you again next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.